Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, parking rates in Hamilton are expected to rise. Residents should expect to pay 50 cents more per hour at parking meters. What kind of an impact is that going to have? One of the United States' best-known political talk show hosts, Chris Matthews, announced last night that he was resigning effective immediately. This comes after several controversies. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us to talk about that. And a controversial and explosive miniseries on CBC about the Richard Olin murder that occurred in uh, 2011 is going to air for the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk with the director about that. Deborah Wainwright joins us on the podcast in just a couple of seconds. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We mentioned uh, the other day that Hamilton City Council are putting the uh, finishing touches on their budget uh, preparations for this year. Uh, still a couple of things that they have to do yet, and uh, they're going to try to tackle some of that today. But one of the things that's always contentious, of course, is parking rates. Uh, residents in Hamilton are probably expecting to pay about 50 cents more per hour uh, at parking meters in Hamilton. Uh, but there's a, a bit of a twist to it, too. Uh, the the whole parking system of paying for parking is now moving into the 21st century. Uh, Jason Farr is the counselor for Ward 2 downtown. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Jay, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us here today. No problem, Bill. Yeah, parking. Turns out there's an app for that. Well, there is now. Talk to us about mm-hmm. that. Uh, well, we have the technology. We've had it for some time. And as a matter of fact, our enforcement officers and their devices that they use to enforce, they look like little uh, Star Trek controllers. Um, they have, for about a year now, had the ability uh, to enforce this 21st century uh, technology. However, we haven't had the technology in place. And so, we're doing uh, beta testing now, and as we heard uh, from Brian Hollingworth, our Director of Transportation Planning and Parking in our Economic Development Department yesterday when asked uh, in committee, should be a late June, early July roll-up, uh, rollout of uh, an app for our, our parking uh, in the entire city. So th- explain how this is going to work. In other words, you, you don't really have to put coins in the meter anymore. You'll still have that option, but um, for convenience, this technology uh, basically is uh, you sign up for the app, you get it on your phone. Once you park, you you simply, I think it's a, a, a two-step process that uh, online uh, feeds that meter, so you don't do it with the coins anymore if you have the app. And then um, you can add to the time, depending on the regulation, if it's a two-hour limit and you only paid on your app for one hour and you're sitting in a restaurant and you're enjoying the wonderful amenities of King William at the French or some wonderful restaurant you want to stay, you can right there in your chair add a bit of time to your meter. Or if you're sitting at a council meeting and uh, the councillors tend to go on and on and on. I've, I've, you've seen that, and I know I have uh, for many, many years, too. People have to go scrambling into the back parking lot and put more money into the meter because they thought the meeting was only going to last an hour. But anyway, so this, it's just, it's, there's a convenience to this. Uh, there's definitely a convenience. I'm not naming names here, Jay, but anyway, <laughs> it, it does happen. Councillor Ferguson mentioned that over 10 years ago, <laughs> the inconvenience of having to leave a committee or a council meeting and go feed a meter and hopefully have the change. And so I think he'd be more happy about this technology than anybody. He's been uh, barking about it, and I say that in a nice way, for some time now. But yes, it's certainly it's something that we have been, uh, it's long overdue. It's taken some time, but uh, it is in place. And, and, you know, we did hear from uh, BIAs, I can think of International Village BIA as one who said, okay, you know, we contemplate this rate increase at meters of uh, 25 cents or 50 cents, but uh, the technology has to happen at the same time. There has to be a, 
uh, a good reason for the uh, increase because they see as a, as a business improvement area an advantage to their customers to have that 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 that, that technology in place and the great convenience that comes with it is it, it may be worth a, a, a few extra quarters uh, to have that convenience. But you've heard from your time on council, and I'm sure you've heard it with this latest announcement as well. Uh, the other side of that coin, with as far as BIAs are concerned, is to said every time the parking rates go up, there's a concern that people are going to say, "Well, I'm not going to shop there anymore. I'm going to the mall." And and this has been a debate that's going on ever since they invented malls, uh, and and it's been a big debate here in Hamilton. What are you hearing? You've got two major BIAs, of course, uh, downtown BIA, and of course the 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 one just on the side, international BIA, very much impacted by this. What's their reaction to this? Well, you know what? I, it's been a different conversation, and I mean, I, I've been hearing you talk about it too for my tenure of a decade or so on council now, and, and it, it's a different attitude downtown from the downtown BIA, the largest BIA in the city and in the center of our city. Uh, there's a progressive change in in the conversation. Uh, there's a greater understanding amongst the board members. I'm not suggesting all, but I will suggest it's been a robust conversation over and over again. I mean, over many meetings, over many years. Um, that sort of aligns with where council is. So we are trying to, and Bill, you know this more than anybody, uh, to, you know, get a modal shift going in this town. We're trying to encourage, through mandates of council, more people to consider transit, more people to consider, you know, that the last five kilometers and riding bikes, and uh, more people to consider, you know, getting out of the car and, and, and carpooling or doing different things. Not unlike most cities that to try to be progressive in the way they move people around, uh, that's been a mandate of ours. And you can look at, you know, we, we declare an environmental uh, crisis. We, we have a transportation master plan that focuses on these things. We have a 10-year transit stru- study. We had, you know, LRT for the longest time and hopefully still do. So all of those things can be incorporated in a parking conversation. And in, in the downtown BIA, they've been robust and people understand and appreciate that, I would suggest not everyone, but, you know, it shouldn't be cheaper to park for a month in downtown Hamilton than it is for a bus pass. And so we we have uh, also a confidence level, I think, with International Village. I would suggest many merchants, but again, not all. You're, you're, you're bang on. There are some who still feel we got to compete with malls and grocery stores in the suburbs and where the parking is free. But there's there's a, a, a great job in, in creating unique business environments, commercial environments, and and there's value in that, and, and people want to be part of that. People want to go to mom and pop shops. People want to go to unique restaurants, and certainly that's happening in greater numbers. And maybe that's why what Parlay is is a waning, at least in my ward, with at the BIA table of the concerns about the cost of parking because they're doing such a good job at all the other things. Now that said, Bill, Bill, we did obviously consult with our, our BIA committee, which features representatives from each. I think there's been three meetings since we asked before Christmas for them to go and talk to their uh, different BIAs. Dundas was one who is more in line with what you've suggested and what has been sort of a theme for some, uh, less and less, I would suggest, but for some, in that they don't want to see parking increases because of the competition. They, they worry that you, if you jack up parking too much, uh, people are going to make the considerations of you know, the Limeridges and the Eastgates versus uh, either quaint area. But I'll tell you, that's the one BIA of the downtowns outside of downtown that I think has done an exceptional job, and they're an attraction, and one that uh, with the technology in place on on-street meters and, and as, as one component of what we approved yesterday, 
Um, I don't think they should worry too much. That said, uh, two people were opposed to the mayor's motion on these rate increases, and one was the good councillor from Dundas, uh, Councillor Clark, the other. Well, Dundas is an incredible downtown, and as yeah. is Ancaster, and, and I'm not going to try to pit one against another because they all, ha- all have their own characteristics and all mm-hmm. attractive in their own ways. But parking is a premium at some of these BIAs, and uh, you know there's not a whole lot of surface parking aside from the meters on the street. So right. I can understand this, and there there are other options. I mean, there's you know nothing at all like going to Pecones downtown, downtown in downtown Dundas. But boy, you may have to drive around the corner a few times to find a parking spot, and you don't know uh, what kind of an impact that's going to have on businesses in the long tall. So I, I I can understand where they're coming from here. There's an area of concern. That uh, it's easier and, and and obviously less expensive to go someplace else and, and shop. So well, let's put it this way: just to, to close on this piece, um, in 2017, you'll recall, Bill, we did raise rates. Then uh, I think we went from a dollar a meter to a dollar fifty, maybe it was a dollar and a quarter to a dollar fifty. Regardless, um, that was three years ago. Haven't really heard much about waning business in our in our downtowns and our BIAs. Uh, since then, so maybe that's another reason why it can be a little more palatable. The other reason might be, and it wasn't discussed yesterday, Bill, I just thought of it now, you know, BIAs get revenue from parking within the confines of that BIA, uh, and that helps their bottom line, and it certainly offsets levies that you would pay to a BIA if the parking revenues go up. So if we're, we're charging more for parking in a BIA, their percentage of the revenue from that parking goes up and goes towards having events like cactus festivals or promenades and different things. So it, it does help their bottom line as well. I'm not suggesting that um, I'm not listening and understanding and appreciating that there are some BIAs still that have an issue with this. On the other hand, you know, we had a representative uh, assure us that all was good. I don't have the direct quote, but uh, Esther Pauls is our counselor who sits on that BIA uh, board and uh, committee uh, representing all members of different BIAs. And, and she gave us a good sense that we're good to go on the mayor's motion. And I should mention, Bill, while we have the time, that it's not just about the meters, as you know. Uh, weekend parking payments are up uh, a little bit. Uh, we'll get a net revenue of 40k from that. With the 50 cent increase that the mayor moved, we get a 560k annualized revenue impact, a positive impact. 376,000 when we increase uh, to three hours and uh, $12, uh, $3 an hour and $12 a day in our downtown parkades. That's specific to downtown Hamilton. And on monthly permits across the board, you're seeing a $10 a month increase, and that will net revenue of 306000 And finally, uh, our parking penalties are going to get to comparator levels. We're paying a little less when we get parking fines in the city, so you're going up a few nickels or quarters, uh, and the revenue from that will be at $383,000. Uh, $383, so we're, we're in, a, in a round $1.7 million in net revenue annualized impacts by adjusting our, 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 our parking in the city. And the prevailing comment I, uh, theme that we heard yesterday was we are now, I would suggest, middle of the pack as it relates to our comparators. Toronto and the high price of parking there is not one of those comparators. But we're, we're not gouging. We're, we're sort of around where everyone else is now. Yeah, because one of the uh, arguments in the past has always been that the the parking rates here were woefully low compared to many other uh, comparative comparative municipalities. So you're playing catch up. But let me ask you something, and and you've touched on this, and it's great that you're being candid about this. This is a revenue generator, and this is one of the reasons why the uh, and we know about the budget pressures that are on there, and you guys are trying to find nickels under cushions here to to try to get that budget down. We get that. Uh, was there any consideration at all about the the free parking that uh, you offer BIAs during the holiday season? 
No, we'll, for, for now, that is maintained. It tends to be a motion every year to offer it. Um, I didn't hear anyone suggest that we should uh, X nay on that. What we are doing is is charging for weekend parking in downtown where we haven't for a long time. Something from the mid nineties, I think, where it was suggested that would be a great idea. But I, I think for the purposes of uh, of uh, having some consistency, it, it's a smarter move. And what we're finding too, unfortunately, in some cases, at least in this ward, is that some are seeing that it's free and they work at some of these shops and they're parking close to the shop on the street and staying there all day and then we don't get the turnover so when you start paying you start seeing turnover and turnover obviously uh should equate to more customers so we're doing that now i haven't heard anything about the uh the seasonal uh i don't suggest i don't i don't suspect that we'll we'll x on that uh free seasonal parking for all of the bias and and uh, at least i i know i'll, I'll support that bill well, and some of them do opt out of it. I know in the past it hasn't been unanimous. Some of them would prefer no. to to maintain that because, as you sh- said, uh, what they reference every time is they they want turnover. They they don't want cars parked there all day long, uh, yep. which do, do, does tend to happen when there's no uh, no charge for these sorts of things. So this is going to be in, this is going to be in effect uh, ASAP. Uh, so on the meter, the, the rate increase. Yeah, we vowed. Um, and, you know, we listened to the one BIA, which was International Village. Who said we, we, we could support. Essentially, they said we could support a rate increase on the meters to go from a dollar fifty to two dollars an hour. But the technology has to happen at the same time, and so that was in the motion from the mayor. And that is what we vow to do. And again, that technology, that turnover across the city, should happen late June, early July, according to uh, Director Hollingworth. The one thing I'll say, and, and you're right, Bill, we started the day at 3.0, obviously a 3.0% tax increase. Uh, we've been fighting harder than we've had for 10 years, at least in my time on council. We've been consistently among the lowest tax increases, if not the lowest in the province, uh, minus Windsor, who unfortunately, when they have lower taxes, they tend to cut services too. So we've been doing that without cutting services. We have a mandate not to cut services again. And so we are thinking of ways in which we can get revenue where we can get revenue. This was one that took us yesterday as a starting point for our budget meeting of 3% down to 2.9%. That's how significant uh, these revenues are when you when you add them up. And again, to know that for the most part, we're, we're maintaining uh, a competitive uh, parking rate as it relates to our competitors. Uh, I think that made it a fairly easy sell, and that's why probably only two were opposed. And I suggest that when it comes time to ratify the budget, this won't be much of a debate. Well, we'll see. That's uh, just a few days away, and uh, we'll see just mm-hmm. what kind of response they get for that as well. Jay, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Downtown Councillor Jason Farr with uh, parking rates going up. Uh, 50 cents uh, on the meter side anyway and it, it's a revenue generator i mean you know this is this is the response as we've said i mean when you know we start talking about budget pressures and we don't want our taxes to go up uh something's got to give and uh, this is a it's a user fee really it's a user tax you want to park downtown you're going to have to pay a little bit more for it that's all there is to it or just have it go on your property taxes i think you know which one you'd prefer you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For those of us who are political animals and love watching the U.S. political scene, is let's face it, it has an impact uh, worldwide on what's going on. Uh, and we watch the political shows. And uh, like many of us, for over 20 years now at 7 o'clock, you'd turn on to MSNBC for Hardball with Chris Matthews. And if you did that last night, you heard this. Let me start with my headline tonight. I'm retiring. This is the last Hardball on MSNBC. And obviously... This isn't for lack of interest in politics. 
Uh, and he went on uh, with a bit of an explanation after that as well. Uh, talked for about another minute and a half, went to break, and he was gone. Didn't even finish the show. Uh, Steve Kornacki, uh, who everybody knows from MSNBC, of course, filled in, and he was quite shaken by that. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us. Uh, thanks for coming in today. Uh, let's get to the primaries in a second. What was your reaction when you saw that last night? Well, it was shocking, especially because someone with his TV pedigree, he's been doing it for a very long time, to leave like that looked as though it was something that was done sort of in a bit of a fit of passion, right? There had been a conversation. They said that the talks with MSNBC about his retirement had accelerated in recent days because of all the headlines that were coming out. So it looked as though he made the decision rather rashly. I mean, he obviously wrote out his two minutes, and there are elements of it that worked and elements that I don't think did. Uh, but to leave the next host shocked, right, and to leave all of his colleagues tweeting out, what, wait, what, uh, I, it's not the way that you want to handle a high-profile exit. From a PR standpoint, uh, uh, this is this is the same thing that they used to teach us in school. Don't write anything when you're angry. And, and he obviously he wrote that when he was angry. Yeah, and, you know, he we all know he loves movies, and so he ended it with a cast of blank and nod to his audience. And it was, uh, it was a loaded couple of minutes, right? And we've seen other people, other actual profile people. I, I think of Gian Gomeshi when he wrote his Facebook post, yeah. which got him in a whole heap more trouble than he probably would have been. I don't think that Chris Matthews' statement was anywhere near that. But what it did do was, you know, it, it kind of gave a nod to the fact that, yes, times have changed and standards have changed. And I did like the part where he said, you know, fair standards now. In other words, it's better now. It's, it's more fair than what we used to get away with. But then he talked about, you know, complimenting women. And uh, I just want people out there to think for a second. If you were planning for years for the biggest deal of your life, you know, the, the one big shot you've got, and the person that you're about to make the pitch to or to negotiate with walks into the room where you're preparing and tells you how sexy you are and says, you know, how come I'm not in love with you yet? You wouldn't see that as a compliment. You would see that as a power play. And so when Chris Matthews, according to the allegations in the scathing GQ article, when Chris Matthews would go into the makeup room and say to females that were coming on his show on his panel, you know, a big break for them, a big moment, and to yeah. some of them apparently, allegedly, he, he was hitting on them, making jokes about how gorgeous they were, flirting with them. So it's, it's some people can look at it and say, well, he's 74 years old. He's from another generation. He didn't mean any harm. Maybe in a lot of cases that's true, but when it's in that kind of environment and when you're going out on the air nationally and it's your reputation and you want to be taken seriously for your ideas and you have the host of the show commenting on your body measurements and stuff like that, I mean, it, it is about power and it's inequity. And MSNBC likes to always go hard on anybody who is caught in that kind of a scandal. So I thought it was interesting this morning that his colleagues were trying to find every possible excuse for him, even, even blaming Twitter, when back in 1999, Chris Matthews was given a formal reprimand by MSNBC for a sexual harassment allegation. They had to apparently pay $40,000 to a producer who left. So it's not like this was the first time that Chris has come up against, you know, stepping over the line. At the time, they said it was juvenile, and it wasn't meant, you know, in any kind of negative way. But, I mean, it wasn't his first warning. So I, I found it a little bit... Um, a little bit rich this morning that the the hosts on MSNBC on Morning Joe were trying so hard to make this sound like he was a bit of a victim. Uh, here's the line you're referring to from his, his uh, little speech last night at Soliloquy. He says, compliments on a woman's appearance that some men, including me, might have once incorrectly thought were okay were never okay. Not then, and certainly not today, Matthew said, and for making such comments in the past, 
I am sorry. So there's a mea culpa there, mm-hmm. uh, which leads me to believe that he knew all along that this is not something he should be doing. And he'd been slapped on the wrist for this before, but yet he continued to do it. Well, in 1999, he got a formal reprimand from the station. They did an investigation. So, listen, I was a fan of Chris Matthews, you know, and uh, his encyclopedic knowledge of politics will be missed. On the eve of Super Tuesday, the last thing he wanted to do was quit his gig. Uh, but the fact that, you know, some other women anchors on the station are posting this morning about his amazing knowledge of politics. Yes, granted, absolutely. And he was a pretty, seemed like a really great guy in many ways, except if you were one of the women that was coming on his program and or working for him and felt as though uh, he was using his power to sexually inappropriately harass you. Was this piece that... uh Laura Bassett wrote that was in GQ. Was that Mm -hmm. the straw that broke the camel's back here? Well, it was interesting because she had written uh, comments earlier but not identified the cable host, right? Because Mm -hmm. she was afraid for her career. And so he had a couple of, you know, fumbles along the the trail recently on his show. And he had an exchange with Elizabeth Warren when she was, of course, she had made that comment during the debate about something that Bloomberg had said. Uh, And so he was kind of going back and forth with her. Well, you know, why would he, you know, why would he lie? And she's like, well, why would the woman lie? they kind of it, it, it struck a lot of people as why why is he taking this kind of stance he's on MSNBC well, the, his, yeah I mean he's a an in your face guy I, we mm-hmm. get that and and that's I think one of his his assets as a, as an interviewer depending on the subject yeah, matter yeah. but he was challenging her belief in the victim that's yeah. that, that's how it came across it did and so I think uh, it might have been because oftentimes with these things Bill and from a public relations perspective is that things simmer for a long time they're kind of rumors that everybody kind of knows and most people kind of just put up with it or ignore it or because they don't directly experience it from that individual they don't believe it but then there's something that provokes that reminds that that just bugs people and I think maybe that exchange with Warren was one of the reasons why the GQ article named him you know, and if you look at even the Twitter feed of the woman who wrote the allegations in GQ, she said, you know, it's about time. And then she said, that's all I have to say. And then she followed up an hour later last night with another tweet and said, actually, it's not all I have to say. Ever since I went public with his name, I've been subjected to all kinds of horrible uh, treatment and response, right? So she's kind of come up against the wall of power. And so, you know, Weinstein went to prison, not for everything, but Harvey Weinstein did get convicted. And, and I think that, um, you know, people should just be aware that if there are these past histories, they are probably going to come up. And, and that's hard. And people want to call it cancel culture, and we've gone too far. Maybe in some cases we have. But Chris Matthews, this is not just a fumble he made trying to compliment a young woman once. This was something he was reprimanded for over a decade ago. Go. Well, and the and the comments about Bernie Sanders rolling uh, over yeah. the, in the primary, like With it was the Nazis, the Nazis yeah. going through France. I mean, he, he, you got to think before you open your mouth. I mean, he's not a kid. He knows this stuff, and I know sometimes those are cute little things that he says. But other times you're just shaking your head saying, you know, is the mind in gear before you start putting your mouth in, in motion? Yeah, and part of why Chris Matthews was exciting to watch was because he w- was so knowledgeable and also so fast-moving, right, and so challenging, and he had a wonderful delivery about him. And so things like that, uh, it's not just a gaffe. It's a horrible way of comparison of comparing Bernie Sanders. I mean, it was that was a bad thing. He also made some other comments in the last couple of weeks where people thought, you know, is he distracted or why is he being inaccurate? And he admitted some mistakes. But this is bigger than that. You know, the GQ article, if people are kind of saying, oh, well, you know, he's just an older guy trying to be friendly and flirtatious, read the article. Yeah, uh, it, it's, well, self-describing. I mean, and, and as, as you say, and we've seen this on social media, a number of other people that have come forward and say, yeah, well, hashtag me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and in this day and age, 
Uh, and and it's not just you know well they I don't know that they John Gameshi but they certainly know Roger Riles and they certainly know Bill mm-hmm. O'Reilly and a number of other people that have fallen prey to this. Do they not get it that that going in front of a camera in front of millions of people is a privilege? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that there, there are rules. Keith Olbermann had to learn that the hard way. I loved watching him when he was doing the show there. But you, you, Charlie Rose. Yeah, I mean, so many. You, when you break the rules, it doesn't matter who you are anymore. There, there are not two sets of standards anymore, and these guys just don't seem to get that. Uh, you know, the fact that he's seen this happen and sees some of these other icons, whether you like them politically or not, they were broadcasting icons fall. That should send a message to say, you know what, I better step up here and I better stay in line. And and I don't know if he couldn't or wouldn't. I don't know what the season is, but he's gone now. Yeah, and you know, um, possibly there was a route or a path he could have taken to make amends or to demonstrate some sort of learning. I mean, sometimes you can get ahead of these things, but if there is a if there's a pattern there and it goes back a long way, and a formal reprimand didn't kind of change the behavior, then that you kind of think was there an ego at play? I mean, he didn't seem like an, a guy driven by ego. He seemed like an every man. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to wonder. And I think sometimes when you're in broadcasting, you start to get into your own world and your own bubble, and you think you're something that you're not. And maybe that makes people feel as though they're impervious. We've certainly discussed that with politicians, yes, Bill, we when we wonder why it is that they keep doing these unforced errors. Oftentimes, it's this sense of you feel like you, you're impervious to critique or you're too famous to fall. You're too big to fail. Um, but this is one more example that uh, not only has, as he said, the standards changed and now it's a fair workplace, but also the fact that compliments uh, are not seen as compliments by the recipient if they're done in a constructive power. Um, more to come on this, I'm sure, as, as we've seen, because we've already got conflicting reports about why this happened. Uh, he was apparently on his way out at the end of the election cycle this year anyway, so who knows? I'm, I'm sure that more will speak about this. But while I've got you here, the the story that was supposed to be the headline story last night uh, was Joe Biden's momentum. Uh, Super Tuesday today. What happens? Well, they're calling it Momentum, which yeah. I think is hilarious. <laughs> you know, and I, I tweeted this out the other day that... Uh, when when the biggest monosopper or the biggest raison d'etre of this primary and of the election seems to be a unified desire to get rid of Trump, I, I think there's a real consolidation amongst Democratic voters that that is the main goal. I think people are starting to look at it very strategically. And if you look at the black voting bloc in the Democratic Party, they're the most important, the most numerous, uh, the most loyal. And so there was always talk that no matter how much Joe Biden fumbled around the early Iowa and and caucus and stuff, that that was going to be his firewall. Just get him to South Carolina where they know Joe and they know what he stands for. And of course, they he was he was with Barack Obama. Uh, and nobody expected, though, that the firewall would be that big. And there was a really powerful endorsement given by sort of the leader of South Carolina, um, uh, Congressman Kleinberg, I believe mm-hmm. his name. And, and it was really powerful to listen to. I mean, if you ever wanted an endorsement done, that was like a sermon that harkened back to the civil rights era. It was beautiful. And he basically said, we need Joe to win big. And Joe won by a landslide. And so what that has done is it's got other moderates out of the race. You know, we saw last night Klobuchar and and, uh, and Buttigieg and coming over to Joe. But what it's also done is it's given Bloomberg the question, if Bloomberg, with all of his half a billion in ads in Super Tuesday, the first place today where he can actually be on a ballot, because this is Bloomberg's strategy, if he doesn't do well, if he doesn't get 15% of these states, uh, then Bloomberg, the pressure will be on him to actually just just throw him behind Biden and commit all of his money and all of his ground game to the Biden campaign. Because I think Bloomberg wants Trump gone, number one, and number two thinks that Bernie will be a ticket for Trump. 
I, I I still have reservations about Sanders going against Trump. I, I I understand. I've talked to some ardent supporters of Sanders who say, "Oh no, no, America's ready for a change." Uh, not not that kind of change. I, it's just you know incremental change that can happen, but a, a huge change like that. Uh, and he's already been painted. I mean, while Trump's using the term socialist as if it was a a four letter word, uh, you know, although they already have socialism there. I mean, social security they have a number of things already. They just don't want to call it that because mm-hmm. it's, the farm it, it bailout the, bill that Trump it, just yeah, did. Yeah, it makes them feel <laughs> uncomfortable to, to to talk like that. But the fact is, when Bernie starts making sound, uh, comments like uh, "Well, give Castro his due" and all this sort of stuff, that paints him and, and, and characterizes him in a way that's not going to be very appealing to an awful lot of people that are thinking, "Well, you know, I voted for Trump last time." I'm not so sure this is the answer, though. Well, even if you believe that Bernie can fire up uh, the base, because he does certainly have big rallies, and he does speak in that populist kind of rhetoric that Trump does, and and if you believe that that is enough for him to get enough votes to become president, what will it do down ticket, down ballot? Uh, how many congressional races might be lost because of having a guy who talks about the merits of Castro's literacy program, right? Yeah. With Florida. I mean, Florida is one of the states you need, need to they win. They need Florida. You need to win, right, to become president. So Bernie, um, I think, while some a lot of his socialist values, especially to Canadians, we espouse them. We think that yeah, they work, and he often cites us. Uh, is he going to be effective as a president if he can't get the congressional, if the Senate and the House aren't with him? Can he get anything passed? No. So and and so I think, as I was saying earlier, I, I tweeted that Joe Biden might just be the predictable decent alternative to Trump. It's not that he's going to make massive change, and he hasn't been a great campaigner, but. In this, and when if the decision comes down to who is the independents going to vote for and soft Republicans going to vote for people who aren't Trumpers but are Republican, they'll probably be able to go for Joe. Uh, and, and it's going to come down. I mean, obviously, personality is going to be an element to this as well. And there were a lot of people that that stayed home last election. They just didn't like Hillary, right. so they just they didn't vote. It's, and some obviously were Democrats that voted for Trump, figuring you know he's making he's he talks a good game, but. Here's the thing about Sanders that I'm, I'm not hearing too much pushback on, but the numbers don't lie. Bernie has always said, I'm going to bring people out who have not voted before. You know, I'm going to invigor- invigorate and energize this whole thing. There is no indication that he's done that. I mean, he's drawn all kinds of campaigns and donations, 17 bucks, 17 bucks, that's that. But we're not getting any evidence in, in the caucus in Idaho or in the, in the primaries that he's been so far that there are new voters coming out. They're, he, they're not he, there. And he didn't get as much of the younger black vote no. as he thought he would get in South Carolina. Bernie has a message that resonates, especially when you've got a couple of billionaires who are on the stage, right? And if it comes down to a fight between billionaires. Uh, and his, his message is something, as I mentioned, a lot of the world likes and understands, except that is he the person that can make that something that is palatable to the rest of America. When he, if he had socialist values, if he was for Medicare for all and free education, that's a sell that a lot of young people especially like. And maybe he could get people to buy into the merits of that. But when he's talking about multi-trillions and he's calling himself a socialist Democrat and he's talking about Castro, that is just making him, I think, too difficult an option for people, even if they dislike Trump. What's going to be critical is can the Democratic Party treat him fairly? Because Trump, of course, is tweeting that this is a coup against Bernie again. Because they have to treat him fairly if he's not the candidate, they need him to tell his people, this isn't the Hillary situation. This was fair. We lost. Go support Joe against Donald Trump. It's going to be really important that the party not break. Right now, you see Donald Trump running a divide and conquer strategy against the Democrats using Bernie as the wedge. Well, and we saw that at the Democratic convention four years ago. I mean, there was a lot of animosity and a lot of acrimony. I mean, Sanders was at the convention. 
uh, sitting there, looked like one of the old guys up in the balcony and on the, the Muppet Show. But yeah, you because know, he figured every time, and as he watched, uh, you know, Hillary give her acceptance speech, you know darn well he's thinking that should have been me. Well, and there are people from his uh, group who had tape over their faces, right, yeah, yeah. to show that they had been silent. So there's no doubt about it. It looked, uh, it stunk to high heaven, and it looked unfair, like the establishment crushed Bernie that because Hillary was the heir apparent. They can't do that again. You know, we have to come out of Super Tuesday today and see what happened. Now, one of the critical factors I think we all have to watch for is that I think uh, as much as 40% of California's early voting was already done before yeah. Joe had his big landslide victory in South Carolina. So the, the you know, those that have come in are not going to probably favor Joe. They're probably going to be very strongly in the Bernie camp. But what about the rest of the 60? And we're probably not going to find out until Wednesday morning just because a lot of them are mail-in ballots. So if California kind of splits, then um, Bernie may not have that that unstoppable momentum of delegates going into the convention. So in, in the 10 seconds we have left, Biden's strategy here is to stay close as far as delegates are concerned. Absolutely. And to ultimately, I think, get Bloomberg's money and, and war machine uh, yeah. as the alternative to Bernie and to Trump. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a uh, miniseries coming up on CBC uh, starting tomorrow, as a matter of fact, uh, that will deal with uh, one of the most bizarre and, uh, well, I guess multifaceted murder investigations that went on in the East Coast some years ago. In 2011, millionaire Richard Oland uh, was found bludgeoned to death, and his son was eventually uh, charged and convicted with second-degree murder. Uh, but after 10 months, he was released. There was a new trial, and uh, he was uh, found to be not guilty. Uh, this new series uh, is uh, going to follow this and kind of a reevaluation as to what happened. It's a, a very, very bizarre story uh, that speaks to, uh, well, some people say police ineptitude. Others say some rather sketchy uh, accusations that were made. Uh, and, uh, well, this may be, give you, I want to play this first of all, and we'll give you a bit of an idea as to exactly what we're talking about here with this, this program. Uh, I received a call requesting that we attend 52 Canterbury Street. It was Richard Oland murdered in his office. Richard Oland was well known in the community. They've been in the brewery business for over 100 years. This estate was worth $35 million. You got bludgeoned 40 times. It did seem personal. Most crimes that are brutal are usually family, right? I guess. And it's only as the last known person to see him alive. His bank accounts were empty. Did you just get into an argument with him about money? On the jacket Dennis was wearing, there were microfibers of blood. I didn't kill my dad, and I'm being made to suffer. There is another version of the truth. Dad had secrets that we didn't know about. That's a piece of evidence that was never looked at. The Olin murder, and uh, the first of this uh, series is going to be happening tomorrow night, uh, starting at 9 o'clock on CBC. Uh, Deborah Wainwright is the, the filmmaker for The Olin Murder, and she joins us on The Bill Kelly Show to set the scene as to what we can watch uh, for tomorrow and in subsequent weeks as well. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for your interest in the film. What was the motivation to go back and look at this? As I say, this is uh, a, a very, very bizarre and very, very puzzling uh, file that uh, had to be an enormous task to tackle this. You know, it really was. We started following uh, the case in 2016 when Dennis was still in prison and awaiting um, the results of his appeal. And we thought, well, what if... 
what if he wins the opportunity to have a retrial and what if we were able to follow it as it went down that would be something unique to Canada at least I only knew of one film out of the states that had done that um, so we reached out and asked the Olin family if if they would allow it and and they granted us that permission so we were very lucky indeed how how did that go? Because I, I, this this is a family that had every right to be very nervous about any media attention at all, based on what had happened previously. Yes, I, you know, I, there. I I think I think the answer uh, to why they granted me access is is that is simply because I asked. Um, they had been very very quiet from the moment Richard was found murdered in twenty eleven until 2016 and I think that decision to not speak to the media to be stoic and steadfast and sort of get through it together with their heads down might have been a you know bitten them a little bit because the media can only tell the story to which they have access so um, I think it just was perfect timing for me to ask and they decided it was about time that some of their side of the story uh, got out. I don't want to get too deeply into this. I'd rather people watch the show, but there are some rather bizarre elements to this whole thing, including the murder scene itself, weren't there? Oh, yeah. The murder scene is so curious. Um, there is an awful lot of blood uh, because it was a bludgeoning, and yet there seems to be no trace of the perpetrator leaving, no cleanup in the bathroom, no you know, uh, evidence of the departure from the scene. It's almost like the perpetrator sort of levitated and floated out the door. <laughs> well, and, and as... Uh, has been articulated, and this is public record, I mean, some of the stuff that we're talking about here, uh, and you mentioned uh, they didn't clean up in the washroom or anything, but apparently the police used the washroom. I mean, this was a crime scene, and they they simply used this as, as, as they were investigating, uh, going back and forth in there. I mean, obviously this was a very polluted and corrupted uh, crime scene simply because of the stuff they'd done. Apparently they didn't put gloves on, uh, didn't check the doorknob for fingertips, or fingerprints, rather. There's a, there's a lot to, to talk about here, isn't there? There really is. And, you know, the, the St. John Police Force has admitted that their handling of the crime scene is something they could have done better. Um, and listening to them talk about what they did in the crime scene from the seats in the in the courtroom, were, were, it was really quite upsetting, actually. Um, they were in and they were out and there were a lot of bodies, a lot of a lot of people not in protective gear, just, you know, walking through the crime scene while the body was still there. And afterwards, it, it, it's just it was not handled well at all. And and. So that, of course, raises questions about um, how well the investigation could possibly have gone if the forensic evidence might have been tainted in that way. As you were doing this and going through this whole uh, this whole exercise, Deborah, how, how did this impact you? I mean, this, as we say, is a very gruesome murder and, and uh, still unresolved. I mean, there's an awful lot of an- unanswered questions still here, too. As you were going through this process, uh, I'm, you get sucked into that vortex. You become part of that, don't you? You know, I think one of the hardest things is when you're interviewing people um, for whom this is extremely personal and painful. So, you know, interviewing um, the victim's widow, interviewing the um, accused children and so on. When they get emotional, it's hard not to get emotional. It's also hard not to get emotional when you sit into in the courthouse um, day after day and listen to um, the description of the wounds um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the the court has not put anyone in prison for this horrible crime, and that's that's upsetting. There's no question about it, and I think that's the case, not just for me, because I was in there and, and the crew um, that I had the lucky opportunity of working with, but, but I think it will be the same for viewers, that sort of feeling that there is no conclusion at the moment. 
how does this how does this leave you as you finish this project? And we'll see this starting as we say tomorrow for and for for the next four uh, weeks. So we'll we'll get an inkling as to as to what you saw through through the lens of the camera and the investigation and the interviews you did. But uh, were you as as emotionally drained at the end of this as as I'm sure the family was as they went through this? <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to compare my uh, my reaction to theirs, but um, it definitely after three years and 150 hours of recorded interviews. Um, I could use a vacation for sure. <laughs> I could. I could. And, and I hope that the effort that we put into it, into crafting, you know, the best, fairest, most balanced version of this story that we could craft is something that, that the viewers see and, and appreciate as well. And maybe they'll feel exhausted at the end of it as well. Who knows? Well, it starts tomorrow night, 9 o'clock on CBC, and uh, for the next four weeks, of course, we'll uh, uh, get an inkling as to what went on and uh, maybe why it went on, and uh, I guess we can draw our own conclusions at the end of this. I'm looking forward to this, Deborah, and I want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about this this morning. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Deborah Wainwright, of course, who is uh, uh, the director and filmmaker for The Orland Murder, and uh, you should check it out tomorrow night, too. It's uh, one of these bizarre, bizarre stories, and I remember it very, very well, because obviously it gained national attention because of the, the nature of the crime itself and obviously the nature of the investigation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.